the conference that I went to in Bali was uh, called the Transform World Conference, and their goal was to get a whole bunch of movers and shakers from around the world together um, over about a three-day period to see if we can see if they could put together a plan to bring about transformation in the world across a whole bunch of different spheres. Um, so they ended up with about 430 people there from 40 plus nations around the uh, the world, and it was good. Uh, I went to Bali about two years ago, uh, which was a bit of a kickoff for some of the churches in Bali to uh, to become unified and work together instead of competing with one another, which is a bit odd, but churches seem to do that every now and then. They tend to be a little bit more competitors than they are uh, team workers. Um, and that was really, really good. I don't particularly like Bali. I, if you ask me whether it would be worth going on a holiday there, I'd probably say no. But you see some rather odd things in Bali. And I posted one of these things on Facebook. Um, and I'm just going to show you a quick clip of it. But it's um, Classic. Obviously, they don't have a whole lot of money, so the people with cars have money and everyone else rides a scooter or walks or just sits there. It spins, spins me out, and I don't in any way intend to be racist about it, but there's a lot of people in Bali just sit. You know, like you just walk up the street and they're just sitting there and you're just going, oh, I wonder what you're doing. Well, you can see what they're doing. They're just sitting there. All right? That's kind of all they do. They're just, they're just people sitting around. And then... On the way back to the airport on uh, late Friday night, you know, we were probably going through after 9 o'clock at night, and what do you reckon people are doing? Oh, just sitting there <laughs> in groups under these little canvas kind of tarp things, having dinner together and cooking each other dinner. And, and it, it's probably, I'll be honest, it's probably got a bit more of a community kind of feel because they don't, generally they don't sit on their own. They kind of sit near each other and... They don't look like they talk very much, but maybe it's because I've already said everything for the day and I walk past after they've said it all. I don't know. But uh, pretty interesting. Uh, anyway, uh, last time I was in Bali, um, you, you see the most amazing things on, uh, on these motorbikes, right? Because people don't have any other mode of transportation. So they do everything they can to get everything on the motorbike, up to five or six family members on one little scooter kind of motorbike. On the way to the airport Friday night, it would have been a less than six-month-old baby jammed in between a mum and a dad on this motorbike, not wearing a helmet or anything. This is just what they do. I mean, you can see the, the classic one is when you get mum, dad, and some kids on the motorbike. Mum and dad have got helmets on and the kids don't. He's kind of going, oh, that's weird. Anyway, this one took the cake for me. So we're driving along. And there's two dudes on the side. Well, we weren't driving along that much because the traffic's terrible. We're kind of nudging along from time to time and on the side there's these two dudes right one of them literally has just bought a uh, obviously from this shop he's just bought a table that seats six right so you put this together for us we're watching it table that seats six with a glass top scooter all right now the cool thing about it was there was never any kind of moment with their body language like it was not going to work it was like how are we going to do this and uh, this is how they did it you can see uh, just up here, I'll show you, I'll get this clip running, but this is the guy with the table on. And he's not driving the bike, obviously, right? Because <laughs> he can't see anything. But he's got his helmet on and he's kind of jammed up behind this table and the guy sitting in front of him is riding the bike. Here's the, uh, you'll hear some of our commentary. <laughs> Look at it. Unbelievable. So good. <laughs> That is, that is crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then he just cuts across in front of all the traffic. You just go, they, they got a death wish. Anyway, 
really interesting stuff. You see lots of that kind of gear going on. We uh, stayed at this place, which was called uh, the Aston Denpasar Hotel, Motel, whatever you want to call it. Huge thing. It's, it um, accommodates about 500 people. Got a massive big ballroom in it. Uh, the first night, they actually took us for a visit to uh, one of the uh, churches in Bali, and they've got this huge big fountain out the front, and that's where they baptise people. It's, it's a beautiful... I mean, it'd be great. It'd be great to baptise people in it. But, but that's how they do it. The, um, the interesting thing about Christians in Indonesia is there's actually a lot of Christians in Indonesia. Proportionally, there's far more Christians in Indonesia than there are in Australia. So in reality, they should probably be sending missionaries to us, like when you look at it. They said while we were over there that there's... I mean, there's about 280 million people in Indonesia and there's about 50 million Christians, all right? So they've got... I mean, that's almost... Uh, what's that? One in six people in uh, Indonesia are Christians, which is really interesting because you kind of think, oh, they're the poor uh, minority over there. And they are a minority, and, and you better believe they get a pretty hard time. A whole bunch of them got slaughtered uh, when it, you know, around the year 2000 by uh, it, uh, Muslims who just went out and just... <laughs> Just started hacking Christians to death and, and just burning their churches and that sort of stuff. So there's a little bit of tension that goes on. But Indonesia prides itself as the country in the world that can, that can connect uh, Islam to other faiths in a moderate way. That's, that's what, really what they're trying to do. Um, so what you've actually got in Bali itself is you've got some really large churches. And in Jakarta, there's a, there's a church in Jakarta that's got over 100,000 members in it. So we, we, we've got no idea about that in Australia. Like, we haven't got any churches that big. And they've got a lot of money because what happened was the Chinese actually immigrated to Indonesia uh, many, many years ago. And they're the business people. And so they created all these businesses, created a whole bunch of wealth. And so uh, you've got a really high proportion of millionaires in, uh, in Indonesia. And the church also in Indonesia has got a huge amount of money as well, which is quite interesting. So uh, that was the church. We had a bit of an opening kind of ceremony thing in that church. So you probably can see maybe about a quarter of the size of the church there. So there's huge big wings. So just to give you an idea, it's a pretty big church. I reckon it would probably sit, uh, seat two to 3,000, I would think, in there. Um, this is where we had our conference. This was at the uh, hotel, lovely big ballroom there. Um, and uh, this guy, the guy who's speaking there at the moment is a guy who was actually talking about an ideological challenge. So we went through a whole bunch of spheres, and I'm, I'm cutting to the chase here because you guys are going, oh, I don't know, I get to see these when my parents go away all the time, these kind of talks. But the guy standing up there is talk, talking about the ideological challenge. So they had challenges like uh, the ideological challenge, the education challenge, family challenge, uh, the orphan challenge. They got this stuff right across uh, all these categories that they came up with where they actually want to get some kind of strategy in place that we can influence orphans, the, the problem of orphans, the, the uh, issues of education, and so people split up into whatever their specialty was to work that out. This guy was from America, and he was talking about the ideological challenge. Let me give you a couple of stats. Did you know between 1980 and the present that the number of Muslims in the world has actually doubled? So you just think about it. In our lifetime, the number of Muslims has doubled. In the next nine years, um, they're expecting that there'll be 1.1 billion Christians in the world out of about seven and two billion Muslims. All right? So it's going to be two to one. What's really interesting about this is when you hear these guys talk about Islam, they talk about it differently to what we talk about it in the West, all right? They actually really love Muslims. And 
I think we're probably more scared of Muslims and they kind of love them. Because the thing for us, and I reckon this is a huge issue for us, when I hear them talking, they're out doing things to love Muslims. When you hear Westerners talking, you hear Westerners fearful about losing their lifestyle and losing the kind of culture that they love. Which is weird because at some level, you know what that is, that's kind of, that's kind of self-love, isn't it? And if Islam gets big enough in Australia that it starts to impinge upon our lifestyles and we get upset about it, uh, I think there's probably a pretty high chance that we're loving ourselves and we don't want to lose our lifestyle probably more than actually loving them. Does that make sense? So I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I'll throw that out as the first reflection. You know, what, What's your instinctive... You have to answer this, obviously, but what's your instinctive reaction to Muslims? I mean, it gets hyped up a fair bit in our media, doesn't it? That they're going to wreck things. They're going to blow things up. You know, is, is your... Are you that person? Are you the person who's scared and wants to preserve your lifestyle, or are you the person who loves them and, and is going, God, how do we actually help them to understand you? How do, how do we help them to change at a heart level? How do we help them to get out from under the, um, the trick uh, and the deception, in a sense, that, that is uh, Islam? The, um, they've made this comment a couple of times over there, and I think this is a really full-on comment. They said, the greatest danger to the world isn't Islam, it's actually nominal Christians. And so what they really mean, a nominal Christian is someone who believes something but doesn't do anything about it. So that's a pretty full-on statement coming from a non-Westerner. Right? They're saying nominal Christians are the problem, not, not Islam. Um, one of the guys over there who was leading it, you know one thing that he did, because as I said, there's lots of people just sit around in Indonesia, right? So one night he, uh, he cooks dinner and he grabs his son, who I think is in upper primary, he cooks dinner, grabs his son and they literally they go down on the street and they just sat down with a Muslim person sitting on the street who just sits there most of the time and they gave him dinner and they ate dinner with him. But that's the kind of vibe that's going on. They're just doing stuff for him and they're just loving him and obviously the Muslims are hurting him and kind of, I imagine getting hacked to death is not going to be painless, all right, which is what's happened to a number of the Christians in Indonesia but they don't kind of get fired up about the fear thing. They're, they're kind of on the ground, the Muslims are there, they're kind of in their face and they're loving them. And it's really, really good to see. I went with a guy called uh, Peter Pelican, and um, some of you might know him around the, uh, around the traps here, around Toowoomba, but uh, it was really interesting going with him because he's just got an out-and-out evangelistic gift, all right? And if you've been to the project here long enough, you, you'll have heard me say that everyone's an evangelist, right? Everyone's trying to convert other people to their point of view. And it's weird because often as Christians, I think we kind of, those who are Christians here, you kind of hold back a bit and you're a little bit nervous about sharing your faith. But this guy lands, Peter Pelican, and I'm telling you, even everyone in this conference, they're all evangelists, right? Everyone there is just trying to work out, how can I tell more people about Jesus? How can I do it? That's the question they're asking. You know, and I just kind of, I'm sitting there at the start and I'm just kind of going, oh man, I, like I'm not, I don't even think I ask that question of myself that often. Like, how can I do it? It's all like, what strategy can I use so that I can just tell someone else about Jesus? And the weird thing about the whole conference is I'm staying with a guy who's just going, I just want to tell people about Jesus. He goes and strikes up a convoy with the security guard out the front of the hotel and starts asking him all about his spirituality and starts telling him about Jesus. We get down into the markets at Kuta Beach, walking around, what's he doing? I'm just going, where the heck's Peter? Well, he's right in the bowels of one of these markets telling some dude about Jesus that can hardly understand English, right? 
And you kind of look at it and you go, wow, that's, that's probably not a really smart move. You know, like the guy didn't really understand that much of what he said. All right? And I'm just going, well, it's not a high percentage play. And, I'm just, and then I've kind of gone, well, at least someone's make it, trying to make the play. Do you know what I'm saying? It'd be better to try and make the play and fail than not to even be thinking too much about that. And that was kind of the vibe of uh, the conference. Um, and I just kind of thought, I wonder, I wonder where we're at with that. Like, do you, I don't know, do you, do you strategize about that? Do you, you know, and the odd thing about it is that they, I can't remember that they ever mentioned hell once. You know, it's like, we're going to go and tell people who don't know Jesus about Jesus because they're going to go to hell. Well, they never said that. They just want to tell them about Jesus. And for me, it kind of sounded a little bit like uh, Philippians 3, you know, where Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I just want to tell people about Jesus because Jesus is so good. That's, I mean, that, as I was thinking about it this morning, I just thought, oh, I think that's probably what it is. And here's a, here's a reflection question for you. Is that your experience of Jesus? Like, is, is Paul's experience yours? Because Paul's right. Jesus is that good. He's amazing. True? He is. And that would be a really good reason to tell someone else about Jesus. It's like, I've just found $2 billion in cash. And I've heard there's another pile. There's, in fact, there's infinite piles for anyone who wants and so we're just going, I've just got to go and tell you about where you can find this treasure. I mean, that's, that's really the heart of it. And maybe some of you are just going to go, well, I don't know him as a treasure. Well, it's not because he's not a treasure. It's probably just because you don't know him as a treasure. Maybe you, could, you need to pray. Maybe you need some help. You need some people around you that can help you to get there. So... Big kind of, I've only got three points today and we're going to be shorter today. But um, the first thing is, uh, is just thinking, thinking evangelism, thinking, telling people about Jesus. The other thing that being over there uh, helps with, and I found this two years ago, is you actually come back down to size. You know, like Project's a pretty small church and we're kind of doing our, our, own, our thing here and the, for the leadership team, we're kind of working full-time in the school and we're doing stuff at the church and we love doing all that sort of stuff, but you just kind of end up seeing your own world all the time. What happens when you just see your own world all the time is your own world gets bigger than what it should be. And you think that that's the main thing, you know. Your world's kind of the main thing. And then you start getting angry and frustrated sometimes because other people aren't playing the part in your story that you think they should play. And the truth is, it's not even your story anyway. And we go over there and you hear about all these people doing stuff He's going, that's amazing. Like, there's a dude from Chile, uh, South America, who runs a, uh, a festival one day a year and he gets 18,000 people at this festival. And I said to this guy, I said, where do you get the money from? He goes, I pay for it. He's going, what? He goes, yeah, I go around and I just knock on doors and I ask people to donate so I can do this festival. And you know what the point of the festival is? He's a full-on loving Jesus Christian guy. The point of the festival is uh, they hand out a book at the end of the festival which is a kid's book that parents can read to their kids to teach their kids about what parts of their body other people shouldn't touch so they don't get sexually abused by people. That's a good thing to do, isn't it? 
I mean, that 18,000 people on one day in Chile, Christian guy running it, organising the funds. And yet, I mean, I, I hear stuff like that, and there was lots of stories of people doing things across the world, and I just thought, that's really good, because what that does is that brings me, and I think it brings us down to our appropriate size. It doesn't belittle us, but it just reminds us, I hope, that you're here to play God's part, that he wants you to play. He's, he's the director of this whole show, isn't he? And his son's the hero. His son Jesus is the hero of it, which is weird because a lot of the time we kind of go, Jesus, sit down, I reckon I could play this part better. Yeah? And he's just going, no, you won't. No, we're near as well. He says, I'm the hero. You're just an extra. You're going to come on the, on the stage for maybe, maybe 60 or 70 years and then you'll be off it. And my son's going to be on it the whole time and this is going to be a cracking great drama. But you're just going to have a really small part to play, but you need to make sure you play it really well. And for us at the project here, and for me personally, I just thought, yeah, that's right. I, I don't know how big a part God's going to give me to play, but I better just make sure I play tomorrow's part really well. And I'll just do what he wants me to do tomorrow. And that's... Um, a scripture, uh, there's a scripture out of Ephesians 2 verse 10 that says, uh, God, um, we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us. And I think as a bit of a reflective thing, it would be good for you to pull up sometimes and just say, I wonder what God wants me to do tomorrow. I don't know whether you think about that. What do you think he wants you to do tomorrow? Because you know he's got some stuff that he wants you to do. And there's a part that he wants you to play tomorrow. So you better just go into tomorrow just thinking about what he wants you to do and how he wants you to act tomorrow in his drama. Does it make sense? Yeah. And who knows? You'll never be the hero, so just get that out of your head. Your own human pride kind of wants to get a hold of that. So... And I tell you, if you ever were the hero, you'd be a really sucky one, all right? So you just don't want to be that. Um, this, um, I'm going to intro a, a video here, which is, uh, it's actually pretty, pretty brutal. But one of the um, things that you realise is we're just part of, of the global church. So people at the conference are from India, Chile, Switzerland, Indonesia, China, North America, Philippines, Malaysia, Fiji, Korea, a whole bunch of others. This one guy um, got up to do a presentation. They were talking about the Human Rights Challenge. And uh, he got up to do a presentation and he said, look, I don't want anyone to take photos and please don't put anything on the internet. All right? Because he's a guy, as far as I could understand, he was a guy that went into North Korea. He was a Korean guy that went into North Korea and uh, he just didn't want to um, have any of his photos there because it would cause trouble with uh, uh, what he was trying to do. And um, here's what he did. I'm going to get you to do it, all right? So you just need to get both things out of your hands. Can you do that? All right. And he said, hit your hand. And he goes, ah, not hard enough. Hit it harder until it hurts. Once. Really hard. All right. Now, this is literally what he did. He was on stage for probably three minutes all up between when he rolled the clip and when he, uh, and when he closed it. All right? But you know what he said? Is he said, the only reason why your hand wouldn't hurt is if it was, someone else's, it was part of someone else's body or you're leprous, you got leprosy. All right? And his point was that there's a whole bunch of churches in the world that don't hurt when other parts of the church 
are hurting and when other parts of the church are being persecuted. And he said it's evidence of the fact that uh, the church at some levels got leprosy because we don't hurt when Christ's church hurts in another nation. And he showed this video. Across to someone else and they just went, ouch. I just, that's a really appropriate reaction, I think. Because, I mean, part of it is knowledge, but to be honest, there's part of me that at times just hasn't even really cared that much about uh, what's happening to, to brothers and sisters who love Christ in other parts of the world. So I, uh, I spoke to this uh, fellow because I said, I just I really want to get the uh, video off you because I want to show it at church on Sunday. And I said, I promise you that, that we'll pray for you, that we'll pray for the Korean Christians. So I reckon I was going to get you to do this in groups just briefly, but we're a pretty small group. So I'm just wondering if there's a couple of you that would love to uh, just pray out loud for um, people in North Korea that love Jesus who are, who are getting kind of worked over. You up for that? A couple of you bold enough to, to do that? Let's pray. you got to just pray for... We don't know what's happening right now, but you do. And uh, just ask for the closeness. Be real. Sense of your closeness with uh, anyone right now who might be undergoing some uh, some persecution in uh, North Korea. Just pray that you'd be close to them, that you'd strengthen them, you'd help them to stand up. I pray that you'd uh, guard them and protect them, protect their faith, protect their trust in you, help, them, help their heart not to turn against you, but to turn toward you in trust. Amen. We'll move on. We um, at the project would love it if you'd uh, if you'd think to pray because we're actually in the process at the moment of uh, working out where we'd invest missionally next year. So there's lots and lots of opportunities to invest missionally, but we actually want to find something that uh, we can invest in personally and also financially next year. So if you can pray that we uh, find the right thing, um, we'd love to do that. Because uh, I think kind of missions trips and being engaged, I said to Ange yesterday that I probably feel like I need to go on an overseas intercultural trip about every, well I didn't say the regularity, but I said I feel like I need to go regularly because you just, I mean even sitting in the bus going through uh, Denpasar in Bali, you're sitting there and you just go, man there's just hundreds of people in cars and on motorbikes and none of them know Jesus and if he's the treasure that he says he is, which he is to me, look at what they're missing out on. You know, and, and it's a bit like what Paul says in Romans 8 where he says, I think it's 8 or 10, he says, uh, uh, who's, who's going to start believing unless someone goes and tells them? And that's the case in our culture. I mean, that's the irony about it. We kind of look at Indonesia and you kind of go, one in six in Australia, it might be four in a hundred, maybe. Or way smaller, you know. And you look at, I mean, there's a hundred thousand people around here, aren't there? And if we've got maybe 10%, that's that know Jesus and have the treasure, that's a lot that don't, isn't it? And Paul would kind of, I would think, probably would say to us, well, how are they going to believe if no one tells them? And I'm not saying that all of you aren't telling them. I'm sure a lot of you talk to people about Jesus. But I'd, I guess my heart here is let's intensify it. 
let's, let's be more watchful in prayer. Let's be more pursuing in the way that we pray. Let's, let's be more regular in the way that we uh, pray for people that we know that aren't, that aren't Christians and don't love Jesus. Not because we're going to get any money out of it. We don't, we don't need more people at the project. And I put need in inverted commas, but people need Jesus, don't they? Yeah? All right, last one. And I'm done. And this goes back to what I was sharing before about Ephesians 2 verse 10. Um, and I'm going to show you a vid here from, uh, there was a guy who ran, I can't remember his name. I mean, you hear so many weird names while you're over there, weird compared to Australia. This guy stood up and he runs this mission in the Ukraine. And his goal in the Ukraine of his mission is that there wouldn't be any orphans anywhere in the Ukraine. No kids without a home. All right, so they've got all these orphanages and uh, he got up and he uh, actually played this vid and uh, this, uh, you better believe there's a lot of people said a lot of things but both the North Korea thing and the Ukraine thing happened within about an hour of each other and it was like that was probably the exclamation point for me of the whole conference which was on, I think it was the second morning. So uh, I'll just roll a clip, make a couple of comments and, uh, and then we'll finish. One thing I will say though, just quickly, I, I meant to say this about the North Korea clip. Did you notice the way that it ended? I mean, if that wasn't a Western kind of clip, it'd be like, let's get our tanks and our guns and our planes and let's go and bash up Kimmel Sung or whatever his name is. Wouldn't we? He's doing bad things to people, so let's get him. What do these guys do? He's doing bad things to people, so God, please forgive him. Please forgive them. And it just sounds a heck of a lot like Jesus. Such a huge contrast to Islam, which is like convert or die. Um, Christianity is kind of, well, we're dying so that you can be converted. You know, it's kind of not in a suicide bomb way, you know, a persecution thing. Anyway, here's a clip about Ukraine. The red carpets were rolled out in Ukraine's capital. Ukraine's most noteworthy actors, businessmen, and politicians were all gathered at this prestigious awards ceremony. With tears and a standing ovation, Ukraine's elite recognized the Isaev family with an award called the Pride of Ukraine. The Isaevs forged new ground when they adopted children society had brushed aside. To receive such a distinguished award, one would think the Isaevs were from a great family line, or perhaps prominent people. Nothing, however, could be farther from the truth. Only God could write the story of how a former drug addict and a woman with a dark past could go on to become the object of their country's pride. I wanted to live my life the way all my friends were living their lives. I wanted to hang out, party, do what I wanted to do. It wouldn't take long before Yevgeny would pay the consequences of the lifestyle he had chosen. At 19, Yevgeny was admitted to the hospital with what he thought was bronchitis. However, his world fell apart when he learned that the diagnosis was HIV. In desperation, Yevgeny ended up on the doors of a rehabilitation center in his region. He was a mess when he arrived. He had a black eye, had been beaten up, and he had water on his lungs. He was HIV positive and it seemed as if his life was over, that he'd given up and there was no hope left. At the rehab center, Yevgeny for the first time heard about the healing power of Jesus. 
I began to search for God. I could see the path that I needed to go on. It was here on this bed that God gave me a revelation. Here is where I prayed for the first time. There was one verse that I memorized at that time. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to you. Yevgeny went through the rehabilitation program and was freed of all drug addiction. Soon, he would meet his future wife, Svetlana. Despite the risks involved, the two dreamed about creating a home together. Until I got married, I was working at a cafe. After my wedding, I worked only one day, and then my manager learned that my husband was HIV positive. And he quickly and kindly told me I no longer had a job. After losing Svetlana's job, the couple would face loss yet again. After giving birth to twins, the couple faced tremendous grief when only one child was born living. However, God used Svetlana's long stay in the hospital to give her a new dream, a dream that would involve adoption. Sveta came to me and said, let's adopt a little boy, only not a normal little boy. I said, what do you mean by not normal? From the moon or what? She said, no, with the same diagnosis as you. So I said, okay, let's do it. The illness that Yevgeny had seen as a curse on his life became the very thing that would give him a profound love for HIV orphans. Soon, the Isaevs welcomed in their first HIV-positive child. Not long after that, another young boy, Petya. When we took him from the orphanage, he said, Do you remember what you said? He was so scared that we wouldn't take him, that he said, Please take me. I'll do all that you tell me to do. I'll clean and sweep and do the dishes. I'll do everything you tell me to. Just please put me in your family. The Isaiahs thought they were done adding to their family. However, God had other plans. The social services called me and said, Sveta, we are sending two girls to the orphanage in your town. You wouldn't want to take a quick look at them, would you? Three years ago, my mom and papa came for me. I was so happy that they took me. Today, the Isaiah family has nine children, seven of which are adopted and HIV positive. It is no wonder that Ukraine has recognized them as heroes, for they have done what many would have never considered to do. God can radically change people's lives, from drug addicts to the pride of Ukraine. We didn't think about any awards. We simply were doing what was on our hearts to do. We simply took on this problem. That is all. It wasn't for any award or title. We simply did what was on our hearts. I only can say one thing. If you are walking with God and say yes to Him, He will give you the desires of your heart. The power of one family's yes is changing a nation. Hello? Yeah. So it's really clear in the Old Testament, God says, I'm the father to the fatherless, 
and the, uh, the father to the orphan. You know, the orphan, the fatherless, the, uh, the father to the widow. And so what you've got here is you've got a family. I mean, I'm probably like a lot of you now. You just kind of sit there and you just go, like, really? Like, would I do that? Like, would I have seven HIV-positive orphans in my house? I don't know, would you? I mean, not that we're talking about doing it, but Angie and I, I showed Angie's video yesterday and we were having these conversations about it. She said, what about the risks? But it's almost kind of like, don't you just see Jesus here and what they've done? Because to a large extent, Jesus kind of goes to hell with the risks. That's what you do. You don't leave an HIV orphan in an orphanage. You adopt them. That's what you do. And you take the risk for love, you know. And it highlights that whole question which uh, I've been reflecting on and I encourage you to reflect on is uh, are there areas in your life that you've fenced off that you don't want God? Like it's almost like you've got this fenced off area that God could lead you in and tell you what you need to do but then there's a whole bunch of areas that are fenced off and you just go, well I'll do anything you want me to do in the fenced area but don't go outside the fenced area. Because the weird thing is that God's got an incredible habit of wanting to get outside the fence all the time, doesn't he? And it just gets really irritating. You know, and you just go, would you just stay inside the fence? And he's going, well, most of my stuff is on the other side of the fence. So you've got to work out whether you're prepared for me to go outside the fence and for you to come outside the fence with me or to stay in the, in the safe zone and be kind of ineffective or you can get outside the fence. I mean, that's amazing. They got, I read a, an article on that family. They got, they got this National Pride of um, Ukraine Award. You know, I mean, who would have even thought? They weren't doing it for the prize. They kind of said that at the end. They're just going, well, we're just doing what Jesus is asking us to do. And I thought, man, what, are, what about even the boldness of the wife? She didn't have HIV. And it probably all starts with her. And then the adoption thing starts with her. She says to her husband, I think there's something that we need to do here. He's going, what kind of not normal are you talking about? You know, and then all of a sudden, where are they? They're on a stage now. Am I saying that if you follow Jesus, he'll put you on a stage? Well, most of the time he won't. Because it's bad for people to get on stages because they start messing things up when they get on stage. All right? But I do know that God's someone who rewards. And he'll reward you. You just be faithful to him. And most of the time, I mean, there would be stacks and stacks of people in Ukraine that have got orphans now through this uh, ministry. And they don't get on stage. No one gives them a round of applause. But I'm pretty sure God will. At the end, you know. I mean, isn't that what that comment that Jesus says is, well done, good and faithful servant? That's the only applause that you need, isn't it? Like you get there and God says, you did good. Now obviously he's going to go, I helped you with it. We're working together on it. It was always a partnership. And it's not, I'm not talking about a pride thing where you just kind of go, God's going to say how wonderful I am, right? But he is going to encourage and he is a loving father. Just says, son, daughter, you did good. It was good stuff. And that, that will be really fulfilling. And so I'll just, I'll leave that question with you today. Are you honestly 
prepared to do anything that he calls you to. Like anything. And the really uncomfortable thing about this is that was, that was always part of the deal. It was always the deal in coming to Jesus. Anyone who comes to me must first take up his cross and die. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. It's, it's like he doesn't give you the opportunity to say this far and no further. He, he wants everything. He wants, he's, he's pulling the fence down. Do you get what I'm saying? And I, that, I mean, that's probably part of the journey for someone who loves Jesus is he's just got to keep tearing the fence down, you know? And then we gather all our tools together and a few star posts and some barbed wire and we run about 20 metres further out and build another fence. He goes, well, I'm going to tear that down too until I've got someone who's just going to do whatever I ask him to do. And then look out. I mean, this is not just, I don't want it in any way to sound negative. I mean, look out when God gets someone that will do whatever he asks him to do. That will be amazing. But not in the way that we measure amazing. It'll be amazing. And the, and the fruitfulness of that person will be absolutely incredible. And it could be you. I mean, honestly, what have we got? Someone must have sent a memo out that I didn't get that church wasn't on today. But we've got like 30 or 40 of us, right? You, are, you could be seriously damaging in the best possible way if 30 or 40 people would do anything. I mean, that's really what Jesus had in his 11 disciples. One of them topped himself, all right, and he's got 11 left over, and that's exactly what happened. He ended up with 11 people who were pretty soft at the start who ended up doing anything for him. And you have a worldwide movement now, and they say that the official number of Christians in the world is around about 2 billion. So you get 11 people who went on a bit of a journey. They kept putting their fences up all the time, right? And Jesus kept tearing them down. And he said, no, I want you to be able to do anything that I call you to do. You just go and do it. And then he ends up with 11 people. After he's risen from the dead, he'll do whatever he asks them to do. And all of them pretty much end up getting killed. The only one that didn't, they tried to boil alive and he didn't die. So they stuck him on an island and that was John. And what happens? Well, there's two billion there. That's pretty fruitful, yeah? I mean, what happens? Seven AIDS orphans in Ukraine. Get a mum and a dad because 11 guys, because one guy did anything that his dad asked him to do and then 11 guys did what he asked him to do. You get it? And you just think, wow, that's incredible. How many orphans get a mum and dad today because of that? I mean, it'd be huge. And it all comes back to this lie that we believe, don't we? That we've got to get what we need, otherwise we're not going to have a happy life. And that we get dudded, you know? We can get this feeling inside where we kind of go, if I go all out for Jesus, I'll end up dudded. And I'll end up losing out. And he says, no, just that's not how it works. You don't understand it. You don't know it. Because no one who goes out all out for him ever gets dudded. I might just pray for you, hey? I'm, I'm pretty well done. It still moves me watching this stuff. And please hear me that, that I feel... <laughs> this is not Sondergeld up here has got it all nailed down telling you what you should do. This is, these are challenges that I feel about all of it. And I just think, 
if, if we're prepared to be uncomfortable, if we're prepared to do awkward things, if we're prepared to pray for our neighbours when we haven't even spoken to them about Jesus, and we're prepared to pray for them when something hard happens right in front of them, maybe just ask God to bless them and help them to just go into those awkward, difficult areas that are on the other side of the fence. Who knows what might happen? Who knows? Let's pray. Jesus, I, I just want to thank you that you, you did um, what Hebrews 13 says you did, that you didn't stay in the camp, you didn't stay in the city, but you actually went out of the city and was crucified for us. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to encourage us, go outside the camp like Jesus did. And God, we've just seen some stories of some people on the screen that went outside the camp. Went outside the comfort zone, went outside the city. Some people who, when it all came down to it, were prepared to follow you, even at great cost. So God, I pray that you'd make us aware to the dangers of becoming nominal, of knowing things in our heads but not doing anything of not believing, not trusting in you, not carrying it through at a heart level. God, I pray that for everyone here that tonight they might just find even 30 seconds where they just sit and they ponder and they reflect and they chew over, I wonder what God's got prepared for me tomorrow. I wonder what he wants me to do. And God, I pray that you'd help us all to have a resounding yes in our heart about what you might have for us tomorrow. And you might say, Peter, would you come and work with me on this? And I'd just say yes. And that God, all of us would, uh, as you call us, and you say, look, I just want you to come and work with me on this one. I've just got something that we're going to do. I want you to do it with me. That we just say yes. We just get good at saying yes. And really bad and lousy at saying no. And God, I pray for this week. I pray uh, that lots of really, really good things would be done this week. That you'd work in the hearts of people around us that don't love you so that they would see how much of a treasure you are. And God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you as a treasure, that you'd work in their hearts. That they'd see how amazing you are and how bankrupt and pathetic everything else is. And God, for Christians here who don't know you as a treasure at the moment, I pray, Lord, that they'd understand that better this week, that you'd show them, that you'd give us a heart at the project here, Lord, for everyone who doesn't love you. Not because we want to go, them to go to heaven, but because we want them to get you. Got to pray for this Ukrainian family that in Ukraine right now and I just pray that you bless them I pray that you'd help those seven orphans to uh, and the other children the other two children who come to love you and to know you as their treasure I pray that you'd help mum and dad because that would be a frantic house of nine kids in there I pray that you'd help them and that you'd bless them and that uh, lots and lots of love would happen in that house 
that you'd uh, give mum and dad wisdom as they handle family issues. Amen. All right. Maybe it's a bit hard to transition. I don't know. We can go to Arnott's Biscuits now, I guess. All right. But I encourage you, if... Um, I don't know. If, if, if God's challenged you, just find someone that you trust and hope that maybe you trust Nathan and I as a leadership here, but find someone that you trust and get them to pray for you and just confess to them, you know. If there's something that um, is holding you back, then just, just confess it. I mean, James 5 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you be healed. So... Just, just confess it and just sit down and pray together. I mean, that's the weird thing being at this uh, hotel is that it was filled with evangelists, all right? They're just praying all over the place, all right? So there's praying just talking to God and saying, God, I'm just going to need some help or I just want to see what you want me to do or maybe there's something that God's uh, put on your heart that you need to do and you haven't been doing it for a while and you need to tell someone and then you need to go and do it and get someone to support you, so... Take the opportunity. It's, times like this, I think it's pretty doughy to talk about the cricket. All right? Mostly because we're losing. But no, I'm kidding. Mostly because it's pretty, pretty dull in comparison. Anyway, there's a brew out there if you want it. Uh, Nathan and I would love to pray for you if you'd like someone to pray for you. Otherwise, have a good day.